I'll mention that uh, today is the yard site of my father, uh, Rabbi Michael ben Rabbi Moshe. So certainly want to dedicate all uh, my learning today and Tashim today in his memory. And uh, just to launch things off, I just mention uh, three Hanhagos, which are inspiring to me, but also one at least uh, to have relevance to Sefer Voracious, and maybe that's also just a good way to contextualize. So I'm thinking of these three because I remember that one of the people who came for Shiva then found these three to be interesting and posted it on Facebook afterwards, and it just reminded me of them. But So among these uh, Hanhagos were that first of all, we just now read Parshas uh, Chayisara two weeks ago. And the beginning of Chayisara, so there is a Rashi. It's a little unclear, but the basic idea is that there is a Smicha Saparshios that the Torah tells us about the death of Sarah right after the end of Vayera, which is the story of the Akedah. And Chazal suggests that it's because there's a connection between the two, that the Akedah was the proximate cause of the death of Sarah. And the Rashi is a little vague, but basically the way my father would relate it, and the reason it impacted his behavior, is that the suggestion there is, is that Sarah's death was caused by the incomplete report of the Akedah, that she was given the impression that Yitzchak was shechted because the report was basically directed as, was basically communicated as Yitzchak nishchat kemat, that Yitzchak was almost shechted, and in the space between nishchat and kemat, she had a heart attack and died. That the communication was so traumatic to her, the thought that Yitzchak was shechted, that that caused her death. So because of that, my father was always careful, and I've just seen greater reason, as one as that, to be careful about this, that if he would go to a funeral or a shiva, and somebody would ask, whose funeral is it, whose shiva is it? So I'd always say it was the the father of so-and-so, uh, you know, the mother of so-and-so, but not the other way around, because if you say so-and-so's mother, so then in the millisecond between the person's name and the fact that it's actually their relative, so then somebody thinks that it's that person who passed away, especially if you're saying so-and-so's mother, they think it's the younger person who, who passed away. And that creates a chalisha sadas. That can create a tremendous agmas nefesh, even just for a millisecond. And you see from what happened to Sarah that it's important not even to allow that one second of agmas nefesh, even if it's going to be corrected in the next second, you see the damage that can be done. So, Bizman has that. It's like actually gotten a lot worse because I've seen people be tremendously careless with this because nowadays these messages are often communicated through emails and subject headings that are really very careless, I think, because it'll say, you know, Baruch Dynamis, so-and-so's mother. And subject headings will often get cut off. So you'll see at the top of your inbox, you know, Baruch Dynamis, so-and-so. And you don't know until you open up the email that it's actually so-and-so's mother. And not that that's not itself bad news, but 
probably is significantly different bad news. Uh, either way, it's not a good way to deliver this kind of information. And especially, it gets much worse because with technology, in addition to emails getting cut off, but they come in and notifications and you only see half of them. And there's just a real need to be much more careful than people are. And so that's a uh, part of the Musra Haskell of that Rashi from last week's Parsha, two weeks ago Parsha. And it's also interesting because if you look at the Rashi, the way it's printed, and so I've always thought about this because it's not exactly the way my father used to say it. It's not, it says, it's, our Rashi has it as Yitzchak Kemat Shalom Nishchat. And if you look at the Mepharshim on Rashi and others on the Medrash, so they discuss what the rap, proper language was because it's a little unclear from that Rashi. It's hard to understand the language there. And there's much discussion in the Mepharshim as to how exactly the message came across in a way that was ambiguous or misleading to Sarah. And there's an interesting discussion in the Gura if I remember correctly, that the way he said it, it was that it wasn't that she misunderstood. She understood that he didn't actually get slaughtered, but just the thought of the possibility is so traumatic to a mother that that alone was able to have that impact on her, even though it was clear to her that it hadn't actually happened. So that just adds another level of sensitivity and just how much that can impact on people's emotional health and reactions and how much to be careful about that. And it's worth uh, analyzing the various nuschos you find in that Rashi and the commentaries surrounding it as to what exactly it was that evoked such a traumatic response from Sarah and all of the various lessons within that. It's itself a powerful topic. That was one. Uh, second one is that there is a Heda and Haga also, which is not really relevant nowadays either because of modern technology, although maybe also shifts because of technology requires just a different adaptation. So it was a little funny to watch. So in the days before I had caller ID, so if the phone would ring and he didn't have time to speak, so he would answer the phone and say, can I call you back? without asking who it was first. And the reason was, explain, because if you'd first ask who it was and then tell them that he didn't have time to speak, so he was worried that the person might think, oh, it's only because it's who I am, I'm not chashav enough, he doesn't have time to speak. But if I was somebody else, he would have time to speak. So he wanted the person to know that before I even have any idea who you are, you could be the king of England, whatever, I want you to know first that I, I don't have time to speak, and then I'll, I'll, I'll find out afterwards who you are. And he wanted to make sure, Davka, that they got the message before they were able to say who they were, so they shouldn't think it was because they weren't chashav enough. So nowadays, everyone's got caller ID, so I've often thought about how to adapt that Hanhaga into a practical form. Uh, part of it is, I shouldn't tell you this, but basically like I always let every ring play out because you know, at least they'll, they'll think that it just went to voicemail without saying it because you know, I've always just thought twice about the idea of cutting off a ring anywhere in the middle. A person shouldn't think, oh, it's because they're screening the calls and they see it's me. So that's another one that how exactly to adapt that to modern technology 
is another question, but that same sensitivity is an important point. And the third point is he used to be fond of quoting the view, so similar to the view of the Sefer Yireim, I think he would quote it from Rebbe Salanter, that we have a prohibition in the Torah of Ona, and Ona extends to Ona's Dvarim, that you're not allowed to impose, to inflict emotional pain on people. And Ona's Dvarim, the language sounds like it means Ona through words. So it's usually assumed that you inflict that pain by saying something nasty, saying something not nice. That's how you cause this emotional pain. But it's pointed out that it's possible to do so even without actually saying anything, just the way you communicate emotions without even words can also inflict emotional suffering. I believe it's the view of the Sefer Yireim that you call panim zoophos, just a harsh countenance, like a death stare, for example, could uh, theoretically, okay, that, no, I guess that itself was bringing that up with itself an act of anastavari. You see, it's just it's so hard to protect against. But, uh, you know, that was in the context of Talmud Torah. But outside, you know, just a, a general negative look could perhaps be a example of anastavari. So if I would point out, I think in the name of Rasul Salanter, that you should be, appreciate that whatever you're feeling at the moment, that your faces are just a rabbin, that your expressions are out there in public and are going to have an impact on others, and that that's the sensitivity to carry around. So it's hard to carry that awareness constantly. It takes a lot of awareness and a lot of appreciation, but that itself is a part of that Mr. Haskell, so that's something else so I try to internalize, even though it is challenging and takes a lot of consciousness. So those are three Hanhagas that I know one of the visitors at the time nine years ago found that had an impact on him, and today on the Earth, I just wanted to share those and make those a little more well-known. Eric? Um, I'm curious, because I've been interviewed actually talking about over Shabbos, what what would the Parsha have looked like in terms of the brachos that Yaakov had given Esau and Yitzchak, assuming that Rivka never overhears Yitzchak and doesn't tell Yaakov to protect Esau? But how would that have played out? What would it have looked like? So say it again. The old well, how, how would the brachos be, have been distributed, uh, including the Bechora, including 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 the bracha of being a leader, including the bracha of essentially continuing Jewish people? How those brachos have played out? Who they've been given to? Assuming that Yaakov had never try, had, had never tricked uh, Yitzchak. It's a, it's a hard question because there's a lot of analysis about this, a lot of speculation. And the character and the awareness of Yitzchak, and it's also a good topic while we're talking about you know, parental uh, fatherly attention and uh, so it's, it also fits in with the whole theme. But I don't remember how much I had a chance to incorporate some of this into the Parsha Shira on Thursday. I know there was a lot to fit in on the Parsha Shira on Thursday alone. But the attitude of Yitzchak towards Esau is a topic of a lot of discussion. And did I mention Shmuel Barenbaum's interpretation? I don't know if I, meant, I know I've mentioned it elsewhere. I don't know if I had opportunity to fit it into Thursday's part this year. Sounds familiar. Sounds, yes. Name sounds familiar. Okay, he was a great masmid. He was the Rashiv of Mir. And he, so 
the point was that it's one of many. I found it particularly interesting, but there are many who have more nuanced understandings of what Yitzchak's awareness was about his sons, because the Pashup Shat Nacham is very difficult to say that as if he's taken in only by the bribery of the good flesh. Uh, that you know, simple reading is the hardest. Uh, it only gets a little better when you factor in what Chazal say that Kitzayi Befiv is that Esav would win him over with the Shilas and look as if he was so pious. So it's a little better than saying he was bribed by the meal, but it still makes him look pretty gullible and unaware, especially as some of the Sfarim point out, you know, the idea that he was blind, literally blind, that only came in then, but it wasn't his whole life, so at some point he should have been more aware of where Esau was holding. <coughs> and so, you know, he, it's, he's described as blind in the fifth aliyah, but he's not described that way in the first aliyah, where the aliyah says that he loves Esau. So it can't be explained by age or disability that comes from that point on. It's, it's, it's suggesting that there was a issue from much earlier. So there are many interpretations that suggest a much more complex attitude. And for example, so just to address the Yaakov part of the equation, so it seems likely that Yitzchak appreciated that Yaakov was as Ruchni as he was, you know, that he was the Ishtam Yoshev Oholim. The question was, so what did that mean for his ability to advance the mission of the Avos? And that perhaps he thought that as wonderful as that is, but there's a need to have a greater capacity to engage with the world as is. And to there are many different versions of this. Uh, so whether it's about whether Rashiv Karambiavna, for example, and I often quote his farm, Rashiva, was when I was there of Goldvich, that at the same time when I was there, the Mashkiach was with Avram Rivlin, who also has a Sefer and Chomish, and they both develop theories along this line that they felt that Avram, that Yitzchak felt that Esav was just more capable of merging the physical world and the spiritual world, and that Yaakov was too Ruchnius to be able to do that job and that therefore Esav was going to take that bracha and apply its functionality to the physical world better. And within that, for example, there are those, maybe others, who say that the language of the Pasuk that suggests that, oh, because Yitzchak brought him the good meal, because, sorry, because Yaakov brought him a good meal, so then he kind of, after the fact, agrees to let him have the bracha. So what does that got to do with anything? So some suggest that maybe that's symbolic of the idea that he was able then actually to meet Esau in that way, of just as Esau seemed to be the one who had abilities to function in the material world also. So you see that Yaakov was also able to step up to the plate in that way. Uh, perhaps the idea that's maybe most resonant with us at this moment in time is that Rav Cook <coughs> suggested that 
Yitzchak's thinking was that we need an Esav to be able to stand up to the enemies of the world right now. We need somebody who can hunt and who can fight for himself because that's going to be crucial for the survival of Kal Yisrael and they have to choose him. Which then is, he doesn't, the selection I saw at least doesn't develop the idea further, but if that is the idea, so then the Havamina and the Maskana really could use some extra clarification. So then, was he wrong, or was it that Yaakov also had that nidah? Maybe that is the case, as we see from Pasha's Vayishlach, that Yaakov was more capable of joining the fight than maybe we would have thought. There's a lot to analyze there. Uh, what I found, I've mentioned in the past, I think, again, I don't remember how, I've just spoken about this Pasha a lot this week, so I just don't remember how much I said here, how much I said elsewhere. But, the I've mentioned in the past the idea that I think the language of the Pasuk perhaps suggests that Yitzchak was actively choosing to love Esav in kind of a deliberate fashion, Vayahav Yitzchak as Esav, perhaps because he recognized his, <coughs> to say the least, complexity and mixture of forces within him, and that he needed more parental attention in order to be able to separate out the good from the bad. So each of these interpretations helps move Yitzchak into a more understandable and maybe more flattering portrayal than the most negative way that looks from the Pashat Shah and the Pasuk, that he was just bribed by the good meal. So we keep edging things over in a perhaps much better light for him. And Shmuel Barenbaum, I just that I just saw recently, in the Sefer that came out last year, and only goes up to Toldos, so I can't quote it anymore after this week, but hopefully they'll come out with another volume. I haven't seen if they came out with another volume, but the one volume I saw last year and only goes from Parshish Gracious to Toldos was very nice things. So he says something similar to that, but he adds another step, which I thought was very interesting, that, and according to his interpretation, you could say that really Yitzchak missed nothing here, but essentially that <coughs> even if we say that Yitzchak understood everything about Esau's misbehavior, and even to the extent that Kisai Vifiv, that the questions he was asking, how do you take Meiser on salt, were false also, and were just meant to deceive him. Let's say it could be that Yitzchak caught on to that also, and didn't even necessarily think they were genuine, but he still saw a Mida that he could work with, and that Mida was the desire to please him, and the fact that he had at least that much, that Esav cared enough about his father's opinion, that he wanted to please him, was something that he could cultivate. And he chose to direct his love towards that in the hope that he could indeed make that grow and build on that. And there, just to add a few points, so one point that Barenbaum notes is that, and I found this particularly interesting because First of all, it's actually, actually because somebody in Shul asked me this last week, and this is actually a little bit of a response. So, you know, the question of why is the, when the Mishnah in Parker Avos talks about Avosh, Puli Badaver, Avosh, Ainit, Puli Badaver, 
why not make reference to this whole episode of itself? So the idea of avilatulia bedaver and general parenting advice, so we think that we normally would advise a parent to show unconditional love towards a child. So I think that is, in general, the advice that we give. So, but here it's interesting, you see something going in a little bit of a different direction, but what's the opposite then? Of withholding your love for conditional reasons? Not necessarily, because what he articulates, Rupert Barenbaum, is that the language of the Torah specifically is instructive here, that he loved him, meaning that, first of all, he was trying to bring out this good quality in him, that he wanted to please his father. But also, when you're trying to develop a bond with a child, it's helpful towards that end that you're not just saying that I love you in a vague way, but the fact that you're able to identify something that they are good at and build on that, that's actually going to be appreciated by the child, at least as he understood it, because it shows that they really are paying attention, that there really is something that's genuine that the parent is aware of, and that actually could get a better reaction even than what you might call a more generalized but unconditional love. So the idea of the apparent conditionality of it has the advantage of the fact that it actually reflects a genuine connection and that was what he was building on so that it's interesting now just I'll add a few footnotes to this so first of all now to complete the rehabilitation of Yitzchak in terms of how to interpret these psukim. So let's say we can now make him look much better and say that he wasn't missing anything in terms of Esav and he wasn't wrong about anything and he had a pretty solid plan here. But, okay, but never he failed. It was the wrong result. But was it? I wonder. Because maybe you could even argue that on top of all this, that he was even successful with his plan. Because first of all, to blame anything on the parenting here, which Rav Hirsch a little bit does. And Rav Hirsch has this comment at the beginning of the Parsha that really Yitzchak and Rivka were guilty of violating the idea of that you should educate a child in a distinct fashion and not treat everyone the same. And they did that. They treated Yaakov and Esav in the same way, and that was what caused problems. So first of all, according to what we're saying, clearly weren't treating them the same way. They were recognizing they had different kinds of needs and proclivities. But also, one detail not to forget is from the very beginning of the Parsha, so we see that Rivka goes, and she's told already from the very beginning that you're going to have these two very different children who are going to have two different nations come from them. So it sounds like it was always destined that way, that Yaakov and Esav were going to take their distinct paths. So to blame it on a parenting decision of any type of either or both parents doesn't seem to be the case. seems to be that this was always the framework in which they were dealing. So if you think about that, so Yitzchak was pretty successful with Esav in that at least he got him to create a bond. You know, the fact that the one mitzvah that he was so 
known for of Kibarav. So that reflects the fact that there was a genuine relationship between them, and that's something that is a success for how Yitzchak treated him. And maybe we could completely rehabilitate his image here and say that everything Yitzchak did here was understandable and correct and successful. And nonetheless, there still had to be another plan for Yaakov's sake that Yitzchak also had to do and to carry out. And that was what she did. And so that has its own elements to it. But it also adds just a little bit of a Lumdish and Trishi interaction. So, again, I think uh, you did just circulate it if you want to listen to my now daily Aliyah Shirim for the OU app, the shorter version of the Parsha Shirim. You guys still get the full version of the full Aliyah and so it's still, you know, for the Aliyah that we do together, still recommend that one, but if you want to get the other Aliyahs, the shorter version, giving on the OU app. So, I mentioned for the seventh Aliyah, without going into all the lumdus now, but just uh, the part that's relevant to here. So just as an interesting kind of epilogue circling back here, that in the last Aliyah, so the Torah says that Esau got married to somebody called Machalas. Right, you saw this, but then Chazal explained the name wasn't really Machalas, but it's called Machalas to convey the point that a chassan who gets married has a mechilas avonos, is forgiven for his averos. So there's a whole shir you could have about that, about the relationship between that and the minig to fast on the day of the wedding. Is that because of the kapara? What's the kapara connected to? There's a lot to say about that. It's a very interesting sugya. But a part of that whole sugya is this idea of a kapara for the chassan, is that automatic? And once you get married, you should get this get-out-of-jail-free card? Or should we assume that, no, it's not automatic, it's an opportunity. It's like the normal Yom Kippur, that it's an opportunity for Kapara, so you should do things to maximize the potential of that. It doesn't just come for free. So, for example, then this question of the practice the Chassan has of fasting on his wedding day, if you say that it's automatic, it doesn't really make sense to say you should fast. You should just party, because you get a repassed. But if the idea is that it's an opportunity, then we understand, okay, so take this moment to do everything you can to maximize the tshuva potential, because this is a special opportunity to get a kapara, but it's not going to come for free. You have to do whatever you can to maximize it. So that's a discussion in Postkin, how to relate to that idea. But the Mepharshim note, well, hold on a second, so who's the model for this? Esav, right? So are we saying, did Esav do tshuva? How are we supposed to reflect upon that. So there's an interesting comment by the Lutzkerov, uh, who notes over there that it sounds like if we're going to look to Esau as the source for this, so he says, so it sounds like you don't have to be a big tzaddik for this to be true, but at the same time, it's not nothing because Esau did have Hirhure Tshuva. He had a little bit of a gesture towards Tshuva. And that's the whole discussion on the seventh Iliad, because he had somewhat of a, a clumsy attempt at Tshuva here, because the Torah says that he had married these women, and they were upsetting to his parents, and that was a part of how Yitzchak ended up going blind, because the Ibn I think that we did talk about in the Parsha Shir on Thursday. So in the seventh Iliad, he's trying to fix things by getting married again, but it's unclear how that helps, because it's not clear if he even divorced the first wives, so what's he really accomplishing? So it's kind of a, a gesture towards tshuva, but 
not really very impressive and not really very successful, but apparently that's enough for this. So it really ties in nicely with that whole idea in the first Aliyah that what does Esau have going for him? He just has this little bit, this little idea that he wants to please his parents enough that that is pushing him to do something, and that's an opening of the door, and that's enough to get this kapara of the chasen, and it was that that Yaakov, that Yitzchak, saw to try to expand upon, and even when he has nothing else going for him, just that, that pintaliyad, to borrow an expression from last year, but that, that pintaliyad, the desire to try to please his father, is and that was clearly what was going on in the seventh aliyah that his parents had been upset about his marriages so and now he's trying something different but you know it's not really too successful but it's a step or it's a gesture it's a feeling and that itself is a very powerful idea that easy and that ties back in perhaps to that interpretation of the first aliyah that that same mida that Yitzchak perceived in him and thought was worth focusing on is the same midah, perhaps, in this interpretation of the Islam Torah, that's enough, just uh, just a little bit, that's enough for the kapara of the chasen to kick in and for Esav to be the model of that attitude for the kapara of the chasen to kick in. So I thought that was an interesting idea. So what did any of that have to do with your question? The point being... <laughs> that there's just so much going on in terms of trying to figure out what was Yitzchak thinking and what was Yaakov thinking and what was the role. So it's very hard to know. It's just very hard to say what was the Havmina, what was the Muskana, what was the counterfactual, what would have been otherwise. It seems like there was a plan for both of them. And to mention another, just kind of inspirational idea, perhaps, that's maybe helpful for us at this moment in time. So there is a sefer that's well-known to students of contemporary Zionism named Ema Banu Smecha. Familiar with that that sefer? It's an important sefer of Zionism. There's a couple, there's more than one edition that was translated into English. And one that was translated, one of the translations into English has a Haskama from Rav Shechter. I recommend us reading it. So the Imam Banu Smecha was actually a tremendous Tamil Chacham by the name of Rav Teichtal, who was Chassid Emeth, who was Mamish Satmer. But he was of the bent before the Holocaust, he was an anti Zionist. And his experiences in the Holocaust, he changed his philosophy and he became more open to the idea of Zionism. And he wrote this book, which became a, since then, since, the, since that time of the Holocaust, the past 75 years, became a very influential text of contemporary Zionism. Again, you can get it in at least two English versions. So, but he was also known for his other writings before this. So he wrote Chuvis by the title Mishnah Sachir. It was a quite... Uh, substantial Tamar Chacham of note. And more recently, they published other writings from him so you can get the Mishnah Sacher on Perki Avos, you can get the Mishnah Sacher on Torah. So in the volume on Torah, so he describes that during the Holocaust, there was one time when he was hidden, uh, hiding on a roof, and watching what was going on, and he was just particularly struck by just how terrible the Matzev is, and he was watching the Nazis harassed the Jews 
and there was these meager rations that were available for the Jews, and the Nazis were taking from those, and they barely had anything, and the whole situation was terrible. And he was reflecting upon, essentially, your question, that we find that even afterwards, so when Yitzchak tells Yaakov, okay, you got to run now because you've got tensions with Esav, and he gives him a bracha before he goes. And Rav Teichel was pondering that it seems that essentially he had always intended to give him a bracha of some sort anyway, and that the plan was always that he was, Yaakov was going to get a bracha. And nonetheless, HaKadosh Baruch Hu had it worked out that despite the fact that Yaakov was always going to get a bracha, that he also had to then do this plan to get the bracha during Esau's time. Well, to get a bracha or to get the bracha? Well, to get a bracha. But uh, it also has to be worked out that he gets his bracha during Esau's time. And the imagery that Teichtal evoked from this was that you know, ultimately Labiagula and the Jews will be on top. But even at the darker moments before then, when it's clear that the enemies of the Jews are on top, even during their slot, so to speak, still a Kaddish Baruch Hu's looking out for them, and it's going to be protection. Just like in Esau's slot, God works it out that Yaakov got the bracha during Esau's slot, even though ultimately it's going to get the bracha anyway. So, so too, at these moments of great darkness when persecution is felt so palpably you know that Akash Baruch Hu is still looking out for the Jews and that was able to give him some comfort and inspiration at that time but it's very hard to know given all these conflicting interpretations what the counterfactual was you know so what would he have done otherwise and I give you a very roundabout way of saying I don't know it which is which is also part of the parsha because right when the parsha says and also in that seventh olia that Rivka Amy Akovanesov so Rashi says Amy Odea Mamondenu so the whole discussion why does he say I don't know what to tell you so I just spent a long time saying I don't know what to tell you so, I mean, it's, the spirit of Rashi and so the, the only thing we know essentially for sure is that is that Yitzhak was going to give Ace of the bracha of the fact that he would be that that he would be essentially maybe like a, a lord over over Yaakov, right? He'd be like kind of you know someone some, 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 some Yaakov would serve Esau because because that's what when Esau comes back it's a little bit unclear from the actual bracha but when Esau comes back to talk to talk to, to Yitzhak, Yitzhak says well I just made Yaakov a lord over you so clearly there's that was maybe the opposite that Esau was going to be some type of you know. A master over over Yaakov, and Yaakov would, would serve Esav in some way, and that's essentially all that's clear from. But again, like what about the bracha of essentially containing Jewish people, uh, wherever the bechor the bechor might have been, and and you know uh, you know it's it's interesting also because Yaakov runs out as soon as Esav comes in. Like would the second bracha of <coughs> about being Jewish people would that have gone to would that have gone to Yaakov when he was pretending to be Esav, or because he ran out there was no time for that and. So I think that's like an interesting idea there, and, and was the was going to go to maybe both of them? I feel like that could have been a possibility, you know. So, but it sounds from Rebbe saying that it seemed that Yitzhak did intend for Esav because of also how how intertwined the bracha that that Yitzhak gave to Yaakov when he thought Esav was, and and the bracha being Jewish people seems to be so intertwined in terms of it would be it would be hard to say like oh Yaakov will serve Esav, but Yaakov will also be the Jewish people. Like that's somewhat complicated and somewhat comprehensive. So it, it does feel like from the perspective that Esav would have gotten all of it, and for everybody saying it seems that 
Yitzhak had faith in, in Asaph to continue on that legacy, clearly it wouldn't be able to. But it's it's, curi- it's it's interesting to try to figure out where might it have gone if if there were, what was Yitzhak's plan? It's an interesting question at the very least. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. We see that there are many many different interpretations and it's hard to, uh, it's hard to know, but it's clearly a more complicated story than we can take for granted. Yeah. Tano. Kind of like an addendum to this point, but we don't see that Yitzchak needs Yaakov to do anything for him to be in the mood to give Yaakov the bracha at the end of the parsha. whereas we see Yaakov tells Esav, make me food so that I'm happy and in the right mood to give you this bracha. So does, how, how would that kind of play in to... <coughs> Yaakov, uh, Yitzchak clearly had a different type of relationship with Yaakov and Esau if he needed some extra external boost to be besimcha enough to give Esau a bracha, Masha and King by Yaakov. I mean, is that, is that the only well, indication of, of how to say what happened with, with that? I mean, could have been he just wanted a nice meal to go along. I mean, but then he says, ba'avor. Well, it sounds like it's connected. It sounds like it's really? very, it's like... It, sounds, it does sound like it's connected, but there's still some room to diverge. So, for example, it could be a lachachila, but the other kind of thing, because you know, now Yaakov's on the run, there's no time to say, pick me up a burger before you go. Uh, but if, even, if, if, you, need, even if you call ahead. But if he needs to... On the app, he probably could have done yeah. it. Too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if he needs to have the meal to be in the mood, then... So it could be a matter of... It could, well, I don't know. It could be a matter of quality. <coughs> yeah. But he gives birchas Abraham without the meal. Right, so I guess the question of... Like, how, you, would, you would think that that's the higher quality bracha. Yeah, you know, you know how absolute that is. And just, I guess, to maybe illustrate the point, if we can again kind of mix our alumnus and drush parshanas, it seems impossible, because you know, why not? So that idea that he needs to be besimcha to give him the bracha, so... Others quote that lahalacha that there's an inyan of simcha required for a bracha, and the Ramah brings that to explain the meaning, the otherwise kind of very difficult meaning that we you know in Eretz Yisrael. So they say brachas kohenim every day, and in Chutzlar it's we don't, and it's very difficult to explain. We just do it on Yantif. And there's a mitzvah in Torah of and there's nothing there that connects it specifically to the Yantif. So why it is that in Chosar we get away without doing it every day is difficult to explain. And in fact, there were those who tried to change it and all kinds of stories behind why that was or wasn't successful. So... Excuse <coughs> me. Thank you. So, the Ramah suggests that in order to be able to confer Brechaz Kohanim successfully, you need to be B'Simcha. And in Chutzlar, it's we're just too miserable. And therefore, it's only on Yantif when things get kicked up an extra notch. So, Chutzlar, it's on Yantif, is like Eretz Yisrael the rest of the year. So we get that extra dose on Yantif of Simcha, so then we're able to do Berchus Konim, which in Eretz Yisrael they can do every day because they're on such a level of Simcha. 
uh, which I think also what the polls show that Israel is one of the happiest places in the world. I think it's like, it, it, it says they're just in the top ten, I think, actually. Yeah, top like, ten. Yeah. So I guess the other yeah. nine, Shei Be'er I wonder if the Jewish community is the other nine. Yeah, it's like, I think it's like nine issues, really, like, I think, but it's like Sweden is like, Iceland? I think Sweden, maybe. So maybe in Sweden they should do Be'er Maybe. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. Is not, is not that high. But. Right, so they're here, we don't do. But, uh, but, you know, the explanation is a little challenging and a fascinating truth about the cult, from the Kajigal of Arav. <coughs> but, you know, you need some kind of explanation because we have a mitzvah deraisa here that seems to fall by the wayside. But it does suggest maybe you put are we dealing with absolutes? You know, we have a mathematical formula here how Yantuf enhances the Simcha to make it equal to Eretz Yisrael during the rest of the year. Presumably, there is some kind of a subjective assessment, but maybe you're saying it does because if we're not dealing with absolutes. Then why don't we just try to give berachos kodem all day, all year long, and to whatever quality it is, it is. Maybe that's your point. Maybe that is right. That it is kind of absolute. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a mitzvah of something like this. We know there's a mitzvah of some kind out there, so therefore we're obligated to be happy regardless. I mean, this is a mitzvah of some kind of bed being in Eretz Yisrael. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know where there would be a source. The Samach Tabi Eretz Yisrael? Oh, okay, good, yeah, now I got a source. The Samach Tabi Eretz Yisrael, I don't know. Is that a source? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, they're saying, because we, we know we, if they're saying it's a simple, we Breast know... Breast lovers should have to, uh, to purpose code them every day. You get a step counter. Yes. Well, I don't know if this would exactly answer that the the matter of simcha, um, but it feels kind of related that on from what I've been told on Shabbat when there is a Beit Hamikdash, then we also have a mitzvah of simcha. So it's a question as a whole. I wonder if it's a pasuk in, in Baloscha. There's a whole question how to read that because the pasuk says "Be'yisim Chascham." In one place, in Chazal says "Elusha Basus Yom Tov." So it seems to be contrary to other sources which indicate that we don't have Simcha on Shabbos. So that's a whole discussion. Could be. Okay. Uh, it's ready 12.07 any further questions <coughs> alright thank you for I have a quick question yes sir what does Rabbi do for dessert for brachas uh, that I don't want to prejudge because that's a sugya for our parrot I did me and Jordan were doing some of the gemaras and we were like I know so I'd rather give that we shouldn't eat dessert for the next few weeks yeah. well you know that may be healthier um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Or make sure to have bread with it, which may be less healthy. <laughs> Take it as you will. But, uh, Cake sandwich? What? Cake sandwich. Yeah, but I do hope that that's, uh, that's, that's certainly one of, like, you know, we should probably prioritize that sugya because we're probably one of the most nogeya sugyas out of all the things in this parak. I mean, because other things, okay, maybe we should attack a, as time gets tighter, maybe we should pick out the bracha sugyas that have the most practical ramifications and make sure that those are on the list but that's, that's definitely one of them so question is taken in good, good.
in good order. Yeah, no, I'm saying so it's, it's a good idea that because we may have to triage before the end of the semester if we want to do other things than the Mazachta, which we do. So we may have to triage, so maybe we should make a list of the brachos sugyas that are the most practical and prioritize them. So I think that's probably way up there. Okay, very good. Thank you. Well, thank you.